You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are under pressure again, as you can see there, as the latest confidence report shows consumers very much under pressure as well. We'll have more on that ahead, including three names you want to avoid because of it. Uh, The Dow right now down 282. The Nasdaq down more than 1%. Plus, more on the pain points we are seeing in real estate, from rising defaults in one sector in particular to the lending pressures amid rising rates and soaring costs. And the two cities that billionaire investor Don Peebles says are ripe with opportunity as a result. He's back with us today. You don't want to miss it. But first, we begin with two other pressing developments. President Biden, who just touched down in Michigan and is set to join the UAW picket line, first president ever to do so, I believe, as negotiations show no sign of ending soon. Phil Lebeau is live on the ground there. And no resolution in Washington either, where Congress is running out of time to strike a deal to avoid a government shutdown. Moody's warning of the consequences on America's credit rating, the only firm to still give us a AAA. We'll examine the fallout in a moment with Point72 Chief Economist Dean Mackey, Uh, and our own Emily Wilkins and Steve Leisman. But first to Michigan for the latest on the auto worker strike and the arrival of the president any moment now, Phil. And the motorcade has been seen at a GM parts and distribution center not far from here. I believe it's it's up in in Belleville. We're waiting for the pool feed to uh, show up and then we will get some comments that are uh, being taped with the, the president there where he meets with some of the UAW members who are on strike there. Whether or not you formally say he is picketing with them or is simply meeting with them. He is clearly showing support for the organized labor uh, movement here in Michigan and for the United Auto Workers. And when he's there, he is expected to give some brief remarks. As soon as we hear from the president, we will relay those to you. Against this backdrop of the president's visit tomorrow and Donald Trump coming to Michigan, uh, or president's trip today, Donald Trump coming to Michigan tomorrow, there is negotiations continuing between the UAW and the big three automakers, though there's probably some type of a pause going on as we speak right now. Here's the latest on those negotiations. First of all, Ford and the UAW, they are battling over an EV battery plant that is planned for about 100 miles west of here. We're not going to go into all the details here, but this is at the heart of the debate over this this contract, the, the, the negotiation. What happens with those battery plant jobs, EV manufacturing jobs? Are they UAW jobs? Uh, and at what pay scale do those people get represented uh, if they are with the UAW? Then there's Stellantis. It put out a note yesterday saying, look, we are ready to negotiate and to award a large raise to the UAW, but our costs have to be competitive. And Stellantis says for its cost to be competitive, it has to benchmark those against foreign automakers here in the United States and ultimately against Tesla. And finally, there's General Motors. It continues in its discussions with the UAW, but we get no sense that an agreement is is in the offing, whether it's with GM, Stellantis, or with Ford. So again, we are waiting to hear from President Biden. That should be momentarily. And this is a little unusual, guys. They are not doing this where he's in a big rally and there's a whole bunch of press there. It's a pool reporter and a pool photographer who are with him as he meets with some of the uh, rank and file members of the UAW, and then they will feed that out. There's the president. We're looking for that black hat. He is making his way in a blue windbreaker. If you can kind of peer through those picket signs, he's about to take the horn. I don't know if we can try to listen in.
the UAW picket lines when I was a senator since 1973, but I tell you what, first time I've ever done it as a president. Oh, sure. One thing is real simple, I'm going to be very brief. The fact of the matter is that you guys, the UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. Made a lot of sacrifices. Gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. It's a simple Stick with it. Because you deserve the significant raise you need and other There's President Biden, who just concluded some brief remarks into the bullhorn, which he just handed over to the UAW's President, Sean Fain. Uh, Phil, just for a quick recap, the president said, uh, you guys, meaning the union workers, you saved the automobile industry in 2008. You gave up a lot. You sacrificed. They were in a lot of trouble. Now, guess what? They should sacrifice, too. The president said, you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. Exactly what he said, Kelly. And the argument that you would hear from executives at Ford, GM, and Stellantis are, we've made record offers. They are offering approximately 21% pay raises, uh, in some cases, an increase in the cost of living adjustments, actually a return of those. Those were stripped out in 2008, 2009. A reduction in the number of tier wages so that workers are hired in much closer to the top uh, wage scale. And from the perspective of the big three, they have made sacrifices in terms of making a generous offer, but they also are balancing that with what they believe they need to do in terms of being competitive with foreign automakers here in the United States, as well as with Tesla. And the fact of the matter is, they are in the midst of transitioning to electric vehicles, and they're nowhere close to making money on electric vehicles. And they believe that in order to do that, they have got to invest billions more over the years to come, and there is a limit to how much more they can give the rank and file workers. So that's that's the rub of all this, Kelly. Uh, nobody's arguing, and you won't hear it at GM, that, that the workers don't deserve more. The question is your definition of more. Sure, no, I'm still struck by the fact that the median worker at GM makes $80,000, and at Tesla, the median worker makes less than 35,000. So the structural uh, challenges will persist. Phil, we'll let you go for now. We'll circle back soon. Our Phil Laveau in Wayne County, Michigan. That's where we also find President Biden this hour meeting with UAW workers as the strike continues. Don't miss last call tonight. Brian Sullivan will also be live in Wayne, Michigan, with much more on the economic and political fallout as the strike continues. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. And while the president is in Detroit for the UAW strike, Congress is still trying to strike a deal in Washington to avoid a government shutdown. Let's get over to Emily Wilkins on Capitol Hill with the very latest. Emily? 
Well, Kelly, it is still not looking like there is a clear path to avoiding a government shutdown that would begin on Saturday night, Sunday morning. And Congress, it's not that they're not working on trying to figure out a solution. But the fact of the matter is, is that the House has tried and failed to bring up a short-term spending bill. So what they're going to be doing today, we'll see this vote come a little bit this evening. The House is actually going to vote on trying to move forward on four major bills to fund the government. And they're hoping that that's a show of good faith to a small number of Republicans who have been holding out and that those Republicans will then, once those four bills are passed, come on board with that short-term funding. That's a lot of ifs, and there's no really guarantee that what we're going to be seeing from the House within the next couple of days. Speaker Kevin McCarthy talked to reporters this morning, and what he really tried to emphasize, and I think what he's trying to emphasize to his members, is that this short-term bill that he's pushing includes a number of Republican priorities for the southern border, things like building the wall, limiting certain types of immigration. Listen to what he told reporters today about that short-term spending bill and the border security with it. The Republicans will put on the floor a rule to secure our border. I think that's the appropriate way to be able to keep government funding, secure our border, while we continue to keep government open to work on the rest of the appropriation bills. Of course, even if the House does wind up passing that short-term bill, there is no guarantee that it goes forward in the Senate or ends a shutdown. Senate is working on its own bipartisan bill, which stands a better chance of potentially passing and ending a shutdown. But it's not clear at this point when exactly the Senate is going to be releasing that bill text. We know it's going to be about 45 days of covering government funding, and then we do this all over again. Kelly? Are there, Emily, do, do either of these bills cut spending? Are they trying to cut spending? The Republican bill does try to cut spending. And I think at this point there is some sort of willingness to do that. But I think really the main priority right now isn't about cutting spending. The main priority is about keeping the government funded so Congress can look, work on some of those long-term spending bills. That's where Republicans are hoping to get gains in terms of funding cuts. Hopefully something for immigration is what Republicans want to see. But at this point, it's really not clear how things will ultimately shake out when it comes to funding the government in the long term. All right, Emily, for now, thanks. We appreciate it. Our Emily Wilkins in Congress. We just had a two-year note up for auction top of the hour, and way yields have been behaving. Uh, we've got some headlines from it. Let's get over to Rick Santelli for those. Hi, Rick. Yes, hello, Kelly. And keep in mind, two-year note yields are the coupon closest to what the Fed may or may not be doing, and it correlates, so it makes maybe the short maturities a bit more difficult. 48 billion two-year notes. That is the largest offering going back to... April of 2022, and the yield at this Dutch auction, 5.085%, which is exactly where the when issued market was. So that screams an average auction. And as you go through the metrics, one thing stood out. Uh, dealers took a 14% versus a 17% 10 auction average. I always like that because if dealers are taking less, investors are taking more. All the other metrics are very close to 10 auction average, so C plus, C plus is the grade, but there's a couple of unique things here very quickly. That's the highest yield at an auction since 2006, we'll call it 17 years, and it's a huge roll. The old guy is trading 5.13 and a half, so 5.13 and a half yield. The new guy, as I pointed out, is trading 5.08 and a half. So all you technicians and traders out there, when we come in in the morning, don't think the two-year note yields drop six basis points. It's just a six basis point roll. 
Kelly, back to you. Rick, thank you very much. 514 is the latest print there, Rick Santelli. Now, from the threat of a government shutdown to the UAW strike, to the high interest rates we just mentioned, the economy is facing a lot of pressure points, including a big drop in consumer confidence this morning as gasoline prices have rebounded lately. On top of this, J.P. Morgan's chair and CEO Jamie Dimon told the Times of India he's not sure the world is ready for 7% interest rates, a hint of what he thinks could be to come. And Moody's warning a U.S. government shutdown would be bad for the country's credit, with longer-term borrowing rates already at 16-year highs. Uh, let's check back in with President Biden before we continue, though. Uh, he's making some more comments out in Michigan at the United Auto Workers strike. And now glad handing. <laughs> We're taking the bullhorn back for a brief moment. Let's pass our bullhorn over to Dean Mackey, chief economist at Point 72 Asset Management. So glad you could join us here, Dean. Our own senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is here as well. Steve, just set this up for us. Consumer confidence dropped this morning. Not, not a great sign. I think you set it up perfectly, uh, Kelly, with your producers here. You started off with the two big issues that are affecting the economy. You got the UAW strike, you have the government shutdown, and then you added the higher oil prices in your lead. And those are all three challenges that are coming for the uh, economy. They're coming for the Federal Reserve. I think without the higher oil prices, the Fed at this juncture might have offered some relief last week. And I think it's a bit of it in a box right now where um, this, these high oil prices create a huge challenge for the Fed where they can't really afford at this point to take their foot off the brake of the economy because of the concern about how high oil prices could potentially reignite inflation here. So it has to remain tough, even though there's a lot of signals in the economy, including what you just mentioned, Kelly, the consumer confidence number that suggests maybe the Fed ought to be easing up here. All right, Dean, a perfect time to have you back on. And it's been a while since we've checked in with you. Uh, you know, it's not... Not every day we get to hear from someone who is most accurate forecaster two years in a row, or you have to remind me exactly what the what the uh, designation was. Do, and I, my sense is you're not quite as bearish as some on the U.S. economy. You've been a little bit more uh, constructive for some time. Do you remain optimistic now that we can avoid a recession if that's your base case? I do remain optimistic. Um, the, the, there's a couple of reasons for it. You know, we've we've had these recession fears for over a year now, and over those four quarters, growth has been two percent or higher every time. And we think growth in the third quarter is actually going to be three and a half percent. So there are some headwinds imminent, as, as you mentioned. But I think it's worth highlighting that the economy did have a lot of momentum coming into this. Now. You know, each of these pieces, the auto, the auto worker strike, the shutdown, they will chip away at growth in the fourth quarter. And we think growth in the fourth quarter was going to slow down anyway from that three and a half percent pace. Um, but these do seem like they're likely to be somewhat temporary forces. They shouldn't last for months and months and months. Um, and we think that underlying resilience that got us these five straight uh, strong growth quarters still remains there. What do you think? I mean, I, this isn't necessarily part of what you, you know, where you want to go, Dean. But when you hear Jamie Dimon talking about 7%, is that kind of interest rate feasible? And would it uh, kind of uh, negate everything that you just said? Or could, do you think the economy could still withstand it? So I don't think it's crazy what he said in terms of, you know, interest rates eventually possibly going much higher. It's not our base case. We, we think that, and, and really it comes down to the inflation outlook. 
we think that inflation is going to settle down over the next several months and is going to be enough to get the Fed to stop hiking rates. So we actually think the Fed is finished hiking rates right now. The only way that is not true in the, in the sense that the Fed has a lot more work to do, as, as Mr. Diamond suggested, would be if inflation really starts taking off again. And then I, I think at that point, the Fed would, would be willing to cause a recession. And I do think raising rates to those kind of levels would cause a recession. So I, I, it's, not a, it's not a far out scenario, but it's not our base case. Steve, I, I'm glad you're here today because, you know, I always like to, to, to bandy about sort of odd new ideas. And I, and I have a new one, which is, um, does the Fed need to get hawkish again in order to crash bond yields in the longer term? Right. Like, I can't figure out how we get out of this debt and deficit situation unless the 10 year goes way back from four and a half, forget seven percent and goes to something more like two or two and a half again. And I don't see how that happens without way low inflation or, you know, a, a way more slow economy. Yeah, and just a warning to viewers, folks, Kelly and I are going to chat, and we'll, we'll, uh, you can just listen here, because I had the same question, Kelly. And, and the deal is this. I Remember, throughout a lot of this period, the long end was lower, in part because it was banking on a recession, and I'm confused as to why that hasn't happened now. Right. And I think what's happening right now is the long end is reflecting three things. Uh, one was first, it was higher growth. Second was greater issuance. And the third is perhaps baking in more inflation and inflation compensation. I think all of those things are playing a fact are, are factors in why those long ends are higher and not doing what you and I, I think both expect them to do, which is to reflect a greater chance of recession on Dean's comments. I think of the soft landing as one of those, like, I like to watch a lot of sci-fi stuff, and they talk about how a, uh, a ship has to hit orbit at exactly the right place, or it goes spinning off into space. I think that the window for that soft landing has been a narrow one. Mm. And the idea of these three or four things we've been talking about, accumulating one on top of each other, I think they make it potentially difficult to hit that soft landing unless the Fed eases back. I don't think the Fed has to get more hawkish here. I think it was plenty hawkish last week. I think it may have been even too hawkish, but I sympathize with the challenge created by higher oil prices, which I think is going to create an issue of expectations and something they're going to have to deal with. So they're going to have to keep it higher. And I think the idea is those fourth quarter growth forecasts and the first quarter of next year are going to start to come down. And we're going to be back in those places where we've been forecasting zero and 0.5% GDP numbers for those quarters. Yeah. Dean, to that point, do you spend time looking at you know, the budget deficit, which is to say, you know, normally, and when we're talking about forecasting these things, like, you know, deficits, that's not a huge variable. That's not a big input. At least it hasn't been in maybe 15, 20 years. Um, does it factor in now in any kind of way? Well, it certainly matters. And, and you know, it can matter in a couple of ways. One, it can put some upward pressure on interest rates. And, and that may be part of what we're seeing now. It also, I think, can be thought of at times as a lot of fiscal stimulus hitting the economy. I don't think that's what we're seeing right now, though. A lot of the reason the deficit has widened is because of lower income tax receipts, because capital gains were less last year when the market was down. Um, so those have been coming down. That's not really stimulative to the economy. 
economy. Um, so I don't think the reason for the strength in the economy is because fiscal deficits are wide. I think the reason for the strength in the economy is consumers are in very strong financial position. Real income growth is quite strong from the labor market. Household net worth to income is higher than it was ever in the 70 years prior to COVID. And that's fueling consumer spending. And that's why we're seeing it continue to outperform. Do, is there any way in which uh, high rates become like an exogenous shock, Dean? Something where everything in, to the equilibrium that you described, and, and for consumers, I recognize this is kind of a benefit. This is a windfall, right? It, on, at some point, if you can get, you know, cash on cash uh, in that kind of meaningful way, I guess the flip side is just, you know, if, if credit continues to deteriorate as a result. But does it ex- exogenously shock the economy if we don't, if we continue to see rates move higher? Well, certainly higher rates do hit the economy. And we we saw that last year. It's worth highlighting. Last year, housing got hit very hard. It took away as much as one and a half percentage points from GDP growth in any given quarter. But housing is now turning to a positive. Residential investment spending, we think, in the third quarter is going to be a positive factor for GDP growth. So housing's already taken that big hit, and home building activity is actually improving right now because there's so little supply in the existing market. So I think housing's already taken that hit from rates. I don't think it has another massive leg down with the current rate structure. And that's why I think the combination of housing at least moving sideways and consumer spending growing means a recession is not imminent soon. All right. And then I guess, Steve, a final word would be maybe this is the last week we even get uh, the data to, to know what the Fed's next move might be. Yeah, well, I mean, well, nothing like flying blind. I mean, it's yeah. not a it's not a way to run a railroad, so to speak. Um, I, I think that's a big problem that the, the government shuts down. The Fed doesn't get the data. Um, I do think the Fed has to be wary, though, here of the impact of these higher rates and what they're having, especially when it comes to the corporate balance sheet. Uh, don't I agree completely with Dean about the idea about the household balance sheet being in good shape. But at some point, these high rates start to take effect, and I think they have been recently. And I think there's some need for relief when it comes to the rate structure in housing and some of the other areas. And I think the Fed can provide that, perhaps without giving up the fight on inflation. All right, gentlemen, thank you both. Appreciate it today. Steve Leisman and Dean Mackey. Stocks are falling today on multiple concerns, higher rates, potential government shutdown, weaker economic data. Uh, The Dow's down almost 300 points. We're on session lows. But my next guest says this is an inflection point for markets. And I think we just teed up the discussion pretty nicely. Charlie Babrinskoy is vice chair and head of investment group at Ariel Investments. I'm referring, of course, to the chat we were just having about higher rates, Charlie. And I, I think that's where you're going here. Yeah. So for 40 years, rates have done only one thing, go down. Uh, Every 10-year period, there was not a single time in the last 40 years in which if you looked forward 10 years, interest rates would not have been lower. And people had started taking that into account in investing, and that had lots of implications. It was very good for venture capital because venture capital earnings are in the far distant future. And so lower interest rates make those venture capital investments more valuable. It was very good for bonds. It was very good for levered companies and buyout funds. It was obviously bad for my business, which is value stocks, because value is all about companies with earnings today. And so I do think that that has now changed. Interest rates may not go up for the next 40 years consistently, but they have stopped going down. We are now going to have to think about who benefited in the past, who was hurt, and reorient our investments for the new environment. Although a lot of your stocks are stocks that, you know, it's like this isn't too much of a a leap for you, as it may be for some, you know, growth funds or something like that. You've been in energy. You know, we're talking about, we've been talking about Oracle. You're sticking with it. 
Yeah, so we thought that Oracle was a value stock. Today, it's trading at only 17 times earnings, which is actually right on a market multiple, maybe even a little lower with a much higher than market growth rate. So uh, Apache and the energy names that we own trading at six or seven times earnings are very much consistent with this theme that I've been giving you. I have to say, this has been a very tough year for small and mid-cap value stocks that mm-hmm. our firm uh, emphasizes the Russell 2500 value index is actually down 3% on the year. So I'm making a prediction about the future, but I got to acknowledge the market year to date has not followed this path. I think that's why people are reluctant to reposition because they're, you know, it's been 15, 10, 15 years that growth has worked. This, this undermines, uh, underpins so much of what we were talking about. Everything from literally private equity to venture capital to private credit. I mean, so much of the other side of this trade is literally in small cap growth. Yeah. And, and so that is the trick here, that that's something that has not worked for a long time. It is very hard to put your money behind. But I, And I think we have to just acknowledge that the, if the Federal Reserve wants to create a recession, if the Federal Reserve thinks that the economy is too hot, that we have a overheated job market, I happen to think that's delusional. But that there's some quotes from the members of the Fed that would make you think they think that. If they want to cause a recession, they can and that is never good for small cap value stocks. It tends not to be good for value in general because value stocks tend to be more cyclical. So we're going to get on the other side of this. At some point, the Fed will stop raising rates and they will acknowledge what I think is true, which is that inflation is, is going to get down to about 3%. It's not going to get down to 2%, but it is not going up. And when they acknowledge that and when they start cutting rates, which they will, Value should outperform. Are you looking past the auto workers strike? Borg Warner is one of the names that you like here, and you seem to be bullish on autos longer term. Just want to mention the president, when asked if the UAW should get that 40 percent wage hike, said yes. So that might add to the extent to which these negotiations drag out. Yeah, that, that could be tricky. Uh, they cannot afford 40 percent wage increases. I obviously want workers to get um, and they have not kept up with inflation. So they absolutely have reasonable grievances. But the American auto industry cannot handle 40 percent increases. So we need to get a settlement on this. I think the good news is we will. And when we do, there's a lot of pent up demand for cars. The number of cars on dealer lots is still way below where it should be. And frankly, Borg Warner is very well positioned for uh, electric powertrains hmm. going forward. That's probably more critical. Uh, listen, are you going to see you too? Uh, I'm my partner and head of my firm, John Rogers, is going to be there opening <laughs> night. We're very excited about the sphere. Obviously, the market is now very excited about the sphere. This was a hated name that has really recovered. People do think that uh, U2 is going to be followed probably by Styles and some other mm. uh, younger um, rock stars that I would not have as much interest in. But there's going to be a great list of people performing at the Sphere. And I thank you for bringing this up. The stock's done very well. Probably time to be a little cautious. Yes, about this uh, it's up 80% year to date. And I think a classic example maybe of buy the rumor and sell the fact, as literally for those who are familiar with the whole saga, the uh, the Sphere opens, I think, right now or this weekend. I mean, it's it's imminent. Yeah, and, and the shows are going to be sold out. Longer term, it's actually more important that the company-owned content, this postcard from Earth, which is a film that The Sphere produced for its uh, showing to take advantage of all the multimedia experience you get at The Sphere, there's a lot riding on that. If they can sell tickets for $100 uh, during the day in Las wow. Vegas, that could be a, a big success. If you have to just rely on concerts, it won't be quite as successful. $100 a day. All right. Charlie, as always, thanks for your time, sir. We appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me, Kelly. Charlie Babrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Two more days, everybody, until CNBC's delivering Alpha Conference on Thursday. And there's still time to register by using that QR code on the screen or heading over to CNBCEvents.com. You know Bill Ackman's going to weigh in on interest rates. Coming up, real estate mogul Don Peebles says one city is about to get hit with a wave of defaults. And when that happens, he's ready to pounce on some properties. If you think you know which one he's watching, you can tweet me at KellyCNBC. We'll reveal it later on in the show. It's a mystery city today, not a mystery chart. And as we head to break, speaking of charts, here's the Dow heat map with only three stocks in the green and tech underperforming like Charlie was discussing. Apple, Microsoft and Salesforce are the biggest laggards. The Dow's down 317 and we're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's your CNBC News update. Fellow New Jersey Senator Cory Booker joined the growing list of lawmakers calling for Senator Bob Menendez to resign. Booker called the allegations against Menendez shocking with, quote, disturbing details of wrongdoing. Thirteen Democratic senators have asked Menendez to step down since he was indicted last week on charges of bribery and corruption, his second indictment for such. A Russian court rejected opposition leader Alexei Navalny's appeal against his 19-year prison sentence. Russian state media reported the latest crackdown against the Kremlin critic. Navalny was sentenced in August after he was charged with creating an extremist community and financing extremist activities. Supporters of Navalny say his arrest and imprisonment are politically motivated. The Department of Agriculture expanding free breakfast and lunch to millions of additional students nationwide. The government will now cover meal costs at schools where 25% of families belong to income-based public benefits. Uh, the previous threshold was 40%. Officials said more than 5 million additional students will now be eligible for that very valuable program. Kelly, back to you. Wow. Tyler, I'll see you shortly. Thank you so much, Tyler Matheson. Coming up, housing stocks are down since last Wednesday when the Fed signaled another potential hike before the end of the year, while inventories of new homes are starting to creep back up. What's the real state of real estate? We'll ask billionaire developer Don Peebles about that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Is more trouble brewing for real estate? The 30-year fixed mortgage rate now sits above 7.5%. Commercial defaults are on the rise, and credit across the sector is tightening. Diana Olick is here with the latest housing data, with the XHB ETF now in correction territory from its highs. Fannie Mae's chief economist Doug Duncan has more on the slowing housing market, despite the run-up we've seen in homebuilder stocks. And real estate magnate Don Peebles is here on set with me to weigh in on all of this, including where he is seeing the most opportunities right now. Diana, let's start with you. Okay, Kelly, we got a read on sales of newly built homes in August this morning, and it missed expectations by a lot. Sales fell nearly 9% month to month, although they were nearly 6% higher than August of last year. The median price of a newly built home did come down 2% year over year. I would note that that median shifts not only because builders may be lowering prices, but also because more homes on the lower end of the market are selling than on the higher end. And all this ties, of course, into higher mortgage rates hitting affordability hard. The average rate on the 30-year fix started August in the low 7% range and then took off. Today, it's at 7.5, according to Mortgage News Daily. Builders have been buying down interest rates to help potential buyers, but there's really only so much they can do, especially because some buyers are no longer qualifying for the loans at these higher rates. Builders are also up against much higher costs for labor and materials. They had been benefiting from the extremely tight supply of existing homes for sale. 
That supply is not getting any better, down 9% from a year ago. As a result, home prices continue to rise, now up 5.75% from a year ago, according to Parcel Labs, which measures prices daily. And it does seem counterintuitive that prices would rise with higher mortgage rates. Usually high rates cause prices to drop. But this is a very unique supply and demand situation, Kelly, as we talk about all the time. And that little nugget about how now we're up from seven to almost eight months of supply in the new housing market, because the pace is so slow, I mean, that that does matter. We're not down at the three and four month supply levels that we were in when the market was much hotter. Right. And the builders, you know, they do have a lot of supply coming on. In fact, we saw the number of homes that have been sold but haven't even been started to be built yet rise in August. And that's an always interesting little tidbit number inside the report that I love. It just shows that they continue to get demand, but they're still not building at the levels we'd like to see and clearly not selling at the levels either. Yeah. Diana, thank you uh, for now. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. And my next guest warns that the recent rise in mortgage rates will test the resiliency of all those new home sales. And he's forecasting fewer than 5 million total homes will be sold this year. That's the fewest in 12 years. Joining us now is Douglas Duncan, Fannie Mae's chief economist. And we are also pleased to be joined by real estate pro Don Peebles, chair and CEO of the Peebles Corp, to weigh in on all of this. So welcome to you both. Um, Doug, I'll just start with you. And I think it's important, especially for investors who've been so focused focus on the strength of the home builder index to understand that the housing market broadly is still well how would you describe it quite slow yeah it's a tough market if you're a realtor or a mortgage lender you're feeling like this is a serious recession if you think about it we went from about 6 million homes at an annual pace down to about a little over 4 million homes at an annual pace that's roughly a third drop in the business in your industry so uh, when you Put on top of that the disappearance of the uh, refinance business, it's feeling really rough uh, for the mortgage uh, space. Right. And I guess uh, sort of on to that point uh, is the question about whether the strength we've seen in the pockets of home building and for the stocks that we've been following can continue because as rates go higher, you're saying it's all the more important they continue to do buy downs or something to make this more affordable. Yeah, what's, what's unusual in this uh, environment is typically housing is if not the most interest rate sensitive, uh, the uh, one of the most interest rate sensitive sectors. So when the Fed starts raising rates, typically construction starts to slow. That's the first part of the cycle. And then that's followed by sales on the way down. Uh, in this environment, because the boomers are doing what they said they were gonna do in aging in place, and because the Gen Xers have locked in 3% mortgages, it's really all on the back of the builders to increase supply. So this has been a pretty good market for them, surprisingly, even though the uh, rates have been rising. Demographics are in their favor, uh, and the slow supply uh, suggests it's going to be the builders that are going to be adding to supply and trying to eventually equaling things out between buyers and sellers. And so, Don, if I, if I may put it like this, would you still be bullish on the home builders, and, you know, in, in spite of or because of everything that we've seen? And what do you think happens with residential real estate at this point? Yeah, I, look, I think that the future is still positive for home builders. What's happened is the overall fundamental of real estate, the very simplistic fundamental of supply and demand, is holding strong. Um, anyone who wanted to buy a home or refinance pretty much had done it by the time interest rates had moved up. And so you have to have new buyers coming in. People who are gonna uh, uh, trade up are not trading up anymore because they've got lower interest rates. But um, income's going up and interest rates are gonna stabilize. 
You'll see them pull back next year a little bit, and uh, there'll be a shortage of inventory because most people who have an interest rate of two and a half, three and a half percent are not going to sell their home because there's a lot of value in that low rate interest rate. Are you <clears throat> bullish on multifamily? That's the one area when we spoke to Willie Walker yesterday where he said, you know, and, and we've heard this from banks and different people, but we also know there's an apartment glut in a lot of the country that, that's potentially forming. So is that an area that's attractive to you on the development side or no? Well, I think it depends on where. Um, if it's New York City, New York City is still supply constrained. There's a significant demand for housing, both workforce, affordable and market rate upscale housing. Um, what's going to hurt the apartment building sector is interest rates, um, especially on existing assets that have been purchased based on prior interest rates and have been bought at three and a half, four percent cap rates. Right. Those are going to have a significant amount of stress as the interest rate swaps burn off and they have to pay real interest rates. And I think and there's nobody to refinance with right now. And mm -hmm. I think that's a big issue. And if they can't raise rents because of the other supply or the other factors going on here. Doug, let me ask you as well about one thing that's creeping into the market. We spoke with a company called Rome, R-O-A-M, that's uh, trying to kind of match people to assumable mortgages. In other words, you know, saying for some of these properties, and this applies more to FHA and those kinds of pockets of loans, that when you buy the property, you could potentially assume the lower mortgage rate that comes with it as well. Um, could something like this ever go more mainstreamed, you know, across mortgages and, and, and existing homes of, of uh, almost all types? Well, uh, they could, but it um, it's difficult when rates change by a serious, significant amount in a short time period because, of course, you need to make the uh, the mortgage holder whole uh, given the change in market rates. So it uh, while it's been out there for a very long time, particularly in the FHA category, you haven't seen a lot of action in that space uh, simply because the the rate rise was so significant and so sudden. So in order, in other words, in order to make them whole, that that means what? That means that if if they have the existing uh, mortgage is three percent and the market rate is uh, six percent, you're going to have to make up some differential for that uh, for that uh, um, the value for that uh, seller. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly <laughs> with the way that prices have been, too. It's a challenge. Douglas, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Good to be with you. Thanks. Douglas Duncan, chief economist at Fannie Mae. Let's turn now to the commercial side of things, which is facing its own share of headwinds with rising rates. Uh, Don, before we talk about some of the opportunities there, first of all, do you think the full brunt of these headwinds has yet been felt, including just insurance and other costs that are getting more and more attention, like in the Wall Street Journal today? No, I think right now there's a lot of kicking the can down the road for commercial office buildings, for, for example. Um, and I think there's a lot more stress coming there, much more stress coming in the apartment sector Is because there? of the nature of how those um, assets were purchased. I mean, the market as a whole ran towards um, or investors ran towards apartment buildings because they thought they were safe. Mm -hmm. um, people were going to pay their rent. People were paying their rent. And, uh, and it was a dependable income stream. What they didn't bank on is if you buy something at three and a half, four percent cap rates, you're making a bet that interest rates are going to pretty much remain historically low. They are not now. And what's happening is those investments are upside down, wiping out equity. 
and uh, beginning to in take inroads in terms of uh, depleting the value of the MES debt. And so ultimately, there's going to be a lot of stress there as well. Which is awkward if people were hoping apartments could bail out the office sector, not that uh, the, re the what do you call it, the remodel of those buildings is easy or that a lot of people are signing up to do that either. Well, I think there's an opportunity there. We're getting ready to launch a strategy in that area hmm. to convert office buildings um, into apartments, into hospitality, um, and into some affordable housing in various parts of the country. Um, I think that there is an opportunity for that. You have to reset buildings, though. Buildings, I mean, you cannot take a 300, 400-unit apartment building in New York City or Washington, D.C., where there's some form of rent control, and raise the rents in one year. So, But you can take a brand-new building, reset the rents mm -hmm. to what the market is at this point in time, and, uh, and then also take advantage of some of your cost basis. I mean, converting an office building into a apartment building under the right circumstances will result in a much lower cost basis than, say, an investor who purchased an apartment building in 2020. Absolutely. We were talking uh, or, or sort of teasing earlier that uh, the, you're, there's kind of one city you're watching that you expect a wave of defaults, and if so, you're going to pounce. Which one is that? Well, I think San Francisco. San yeah. Francisco, in fact, when I was on the show a couple months ago, I thought San Francisco has a lot of opportunity going forward, and it's beginning to happen. The buildings are going back. They're, getting, they're being sold now. And so I think uh, that's the first to come out because it's gotten the worst. I think New York City has to get a little worse, and it will. Um, and then I think there'll be opportunities there. Washington, D.C., though, is the real hidden market because the federal government leases over 40 million square feet of office space in Washington, D.C., and occupies another 25 to 30 million. And they're at the peak attendance in their office building um, is 25 yeah, percent. So, so what's going to happen to all of that real estate? Well, those, those government leases are long-term leases, and investors always look at them as like bonds. Hmm. However, they're the fine print. They're all subject to annual appropriations. Oh, Congress is getting ready to close down the government. They're ultimately going to be looking for places to save. It makes no, they wouldn't cancel leases or, or not appropriate if, they, if the space was occupied. Right. But if it's sitting at 20% occupancy, then they're going to start canceling and consolidating. So there's going to be tremendous stress, in my opinion, in Washington, D.C. for these government um, buildings. And then, of course, the businesses and the, and the professional services firms that do business yeah. with the government, you're going to see um, some contraction there. So I think D.C. is probably going to be worse than San Francisco um, in many regards in terms of office fundamentals. Wow. OK. With that kind of bombshell for people to, to contemplate, what about we've just uh, sort of two D.C. things I want to quickly ask you about. The one is the shutdown. I don't know if beyond that, if, the, if you really make much of what's happening or if you're hyper-focused on any aspect of what looks like it's going to be a drawn-out fight for years to come over the deficit and debt levels. Look, I've been, I'm from Washington, D.C., um, and I started our company in Washington, D.C., and we do, have done business there for almost 40 years. And they've had shutdowns. They come and go. They're political stunts, by and large, because they're brinksmanship. And uh, what happens is we're in a very highly uh, polarized political environment, and so you're going to see Congress, you know, kind of continue the battle. So I think we will we'll, we'll see a shutdown. Um, I think it'll be short-lived. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the reality is the government needs to cut its spending. It cannot continue to rely upon all of us to fund um, some of these absurd expenditures. And so I think they're going to have to prioritize, like all of us have to do in our households and our businesses. It's going to be tough. revenue's down, we've got to prioritize. So then what do you make the president's out on the picket line right now, obviously? Um, the UAW strike is one of many that we've seen across the country. What do you think as a business owner watching it all play out? Well, as an American, it's a very bad move for the president. The president's the president. To go to the picket line? Yes. The president's the president for all of us. 
Um, and this is a capitalistic democracy, and the pillars of, of our democracy rest on capitalism. And therefore, he has to be supportive of all of us. And what he should do is, like every other president does, is relies upon the private sector, the business, and the workers to work together to come up with a common sense solution. He panicked, and his people around him panicked because Donald Trump is coming there tomorrow. And so what he did is he broke presidential protocol, and he showed, is showing up there to walk the picket lines. It's not presidential. It's not what leaders do. Um, and it's a mistake, and I think it, at best it's pandering, and most likely it's desperation because I think his numbers are plummeting. What does it tell you, though, that President Trump was on his way out there, Michigan being a key swing state and the UAW not having endorsed Biden? And, to, you know, some of its members obviously had, had been voters for Trump, but, but they're not, it's, not a, it's not monolithic. Um, is it unseemly for the former president to show up out there as well? Well, he's not going to the picket line, frankly. He actually, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a Democrat and generally support Democrats for president. He is not, he made a smart strategic decision. He's speaking in Michigan, in Detroit, but not at a picket line. He's, he's speaking at a supplier um, facility. And that's different. Um, and the UAW wanted to endorse Bernie Sanders anyway, last time around. Um, Michigan took Trump to the promised land when he won uh, the uh, presidency, and he's looking for that again. Biden's concerned, and so he's going there now to try to fight that off. And in the end of the day, Trump's more appealing more towards the workers. Biden's trying to appeal towards the UAW to endorse him, not flirt with Bernie Sanders. But the challenge he's got is that many Democratic donors are very concerned and, ask, and, and looking for somebody else. Um, many, um, you know, p Democratic power brokers and Democratic politicians want an alternative. And Biden's trying to reassure people if this goes wrong for him, it digs his hole deeper. And uh, if it works out for him, maybe it stops the bleeding. But it's not presidential. He should never have done it. No one has ever done this. Um, and no, no sitting president has ever done this. And he shouldn't have done it. And it's a mistake for him, but it's a sign, I think, of desperation. And it, but it also perpetuates this class warfare, that somehow billionaires or successful entrepreneurs are bad people and the workers are good people. In reality, we're all trying to make this country better. And most of us started in humble beginnings like I did. Well, I think a lot of protocols have been broken <laughs> over yeah. the last couple of years <laughs> yes. and presidential cycles, this being one of them. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Share your thoughts across so many of these topics. We really appreciate it today. Thank you. Don Peebles, chairman and CEO of the People's Corp. Dow's down more than 400 points right now. I'll do a quick market check at session lows for the major averages with the Nasdaq down 1.5% as the slide it's been in since July really continues. Still to come, if household debt is still reasonable by historical levels compared with income, why is one major firm sounding the alarm on credit losses at the department stores? We'll have more on that coming up. And take a look at shares of Amazon, the FTC, along with 17 state AGs suing Amazon for illegally maintaining monopoly power using what they call anti-competitive and unfair strategies. Shares are down 3.3%. FTC Chair Lena Khan will join Squawk Box tomorrow, 8.30 a.m. to defend and discuss that suit. Don't miss it. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've been homing in on various economic pressure points in the economy this hour. B of A Securities raising a red flag on one particular consumer segment, the department stores, lowering their earnings estimates and price targets on Kohl's and Nordstrom, setting a weakening consumer credit cycle, cutting their Kohl's 2024 outlook by 11 percent. 
as delinquencies tick up, she said, which the firm expects to turn into charge-offs. In fact, B of A now expects credit revenues at Kohl's, Nordstrom, and Macy's to fall below pre-pandemic levels. For more here, let's bring in Lorraine Hutchinson, retail analyst at B of A Securities. Lorraine, welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I bet to you this seems fairly obvious and straightforward, but the market's reacting like, did you see these headlines, right? I mean, you're, you're, just, you're just connecting some dots for us. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think what's uh, what's underappreciated is that department stores last year generated about 60% of their income from credit card fees. Wow. So it's a very important income stream for the department stores, and I think that makes these risks of delinquencies really stand out to us. Let me just repeat that for emphasis. Department stores last year generated 60% of their revenues, more than half, from credit card fees, not from selling clothes and shoes and other things. That's exactly right. And we really see two risks to that revenue stream. So the first, as you mentioned, is delinquencies. Um, We saw charge-offs for the industry overall rise in August versus pre-COVID for the first time. Uh, So those, as those charge-offs, the delinquencies move to charge-offs, we see some real risk to 2024 earnings. And our estimates sit about 20% below consensus for the group. That's the first issue. The second issue is regulatory concerns because the CFPB has proposed a rule that limits late fees Mm. that credit card companies can charge the consumer. That's a whole different risk and much harder for us to really figure out because we have very limited disclosure. You know, we've run some scenario analyses. We've gotten to earnings risk of high single digits all the way up to 60%. So there's a real lack of clarity here, but I think it limits the potential stock appreciation of the group until we really have more clarity on this issue. So tell me why, and this is a, a very dumb question, I apologize. We're not in recession right now. Why would credit card revenues at these major department stores be declining so much next year? So look, uh, they all, some of them saw some nice increases after COVID. The consumer credit profile was excellent. The consumer had a lot of extra money and they were paying off their card balances. So in some cases we saw consumer card revenues actually rise nicely above pre-COVID levels. Now we're not only seeing that unwind, but we're seeing rising delinquencies come in and affect that. So that's the first issue. The second issue is for the department stores, their revenues, so revenue is actually selling things to people, are well below pre-COVID levels as well. So if the customer is spending less on the card because they're spending less at the department stores, that also has a negative implication for this credit revenue stream. I mean, I hear what you're saying and I'm like, sell, I don't even know if you have a sell, but it feels like it's not even strong enough. Like these companies are in, are they in like existential crisis here? Look, I mean, we have underperformed ratings on the whole group. Uh, We have for a while. And the reason for that is twofold. The first is this issue with credit that we've been watching and tracking for many years. And the second is we do see some structural challenges to the industry overall. We don't think the younger generations are flocking to department stores as their primary shopping mode like prior generations were. So we do see some downward pressure on sales over the next several years. And, And those two factors are really the primary reasons for our underperform ratings on all three department stores. All right, Lorraine, thanks for joining us today. Again, to read more, Lorraine Hutchinson's note from Bank of America uh, with more on the impact to Kohl's and Nordstrom in particular. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.